0: Hello and welcome to Russians with Attitude podcast. This is a prelude to our upcoming Romanov series, where we will review every single Romanov ruler of Russia. Here we need to set the stage for it. We will look at the pre-Romanov Russia, a quick glance at the Mongol yoke, Grand Duchy of Moscow, the tail end of the Rurikid dynasty, Time of Troubles. Uh, Polish intervention, Boris Godunov, and the many waves of pretenders to the throne, in a very brief format. Uh, Let's begin with a quick summary of Russia since the times of the Mongol yoke.
1: To the force, through Russian history leading up to Ivan IV, Ivan, of course, was a descendant of the first ruling dynasty of Russia, the Rurikids. Uh, descended from Rurik, most likely mythical prince, either Scandinavian, Baltic or Slavic, there is a lot of debate about this, who was supposedly invited by the Slavic tribes to rule over them and uh, founded the first Russian dynasty. 130 years later, Vladimir the Great, the Grand Prince of the Rus, which is what the country was called, converted to Christianity. This loose confederation of uh, principalities governed by Russian princes, known as Kievan Rus, united only by its formal allegiance to the Rurik dynasty, would eventually become one of the largest states in medieval Europe. Then a thing that very often happened in history happened, when a civilization that occupies uh, forests or flatlands or hills or mountains lives next to a steppe. Then inevitably, sooner or later, the people who live in the steppe, the pastoralists, will unite. Sometimes for a long time, sometimes for only a short time, but they will unite. And they will come and loot and subject other countries. Which is exactly what happened in Russia in the 13th century, when it was attacked by the Mongol armies, who for two centuries kept the Russian principalities as tributaries or even direct vessels. Gradually, the Russian principalities managed to um, put aside their quarrels and unite and push back against the Mongols. This started under Dmitry Danskoy, who united the Russian princes to defeat the Mongol army in the Battle of Kulikovo Pole and found its culmination in the grandfather of Ivan IV, Ivan III, called the Great, Grand Prince of Moscow, who is known as the collector of Russian lands, and reunited them, particularly Novgorod and Rostov, under the crown of Moscow, and ended up decisively confronting the Mongols in 1480. During that same time period, the Eastern Roman Empire had fallen to the Ottomans completely, and even the Third took up the mantle of the being the leader of orthodox Christianity. He married the last Byzantine emperor's niece, Sophia, paleolog, which allowed him to derive legitimacy to his claim of being the head of orthodox Christianity, and of course, um, Roman legitimacy. Ivan the Great started to style himself as Caesar, which was translated into Russian as Tsar. And... His new status led him to assert, to, to assert an ideology for Russia, namely that he was regathering the ancient territories of Rus, uh, similar to how in the western part of Europe, the Holy Roman Empire laid claim to the empire of Charles the Great. And so it was his grandson, Ivan IV, who succeeded to the throne while he was still a small child. He had a very um, troubled childhood his mother may have been poisoned and the court was a very violent place during the years of his growing up which probably contributed to him becoming um well not only volatile and unpredictable but also cunning intelligent uh, knowing people well dynamic and having a very rich imagination Ivan IV,
0: nicknamed Grozny, is commonly remembered as a madman, a bloodthirsty lunatic who poisoned his wives, has lost the Livonian war, created a Prichniki, a bodyguard corps that rode around with brooms and severed heads strapped to their saddles, terrorizing the vojak boyars. Or maybe Ivan IV was a Europe oriented uh, reformer, a deeply religious man who modernized the army, introduced the new code of law, and expanded the Russian living space twofold. Let's find out. The general trajectory of Ivan Grozny's reign was uh, set in motion by Ivan III, the unifier of Russian lands. Ivan Grozny was fighting with the Swedes and the Livonian Order for access to the Baltic Sea. He fought against uh, Crimean Khanate to the south. Successful conquest of Kazan Khanate. The city of Kazan has opened up a door for us into the far-ranging expanse of the Urals and Siberia. And, uh, of course, he defeated and captured Astrakhan Khanate, gaining access to the Caspian Sea. I think Ivan III would have been proud of his grandson. What do you think?
1: Yes, I think so too. If you put away all the, the, the drama, the literary drama that has been constructed around Ivan's personality, then in the end you have a ruler who greatly expanded the territory of Russia, who broke the back of the horde in the East, um, of course, the, the conflict on the Western step uh, in Novorossiya would still take uh, several centuries to be concluded in Russia's favor. But it was also Ivan the who led the foundation for that by greatly diminishing uh, the power of the Crimean canade and dealing them a series of blows that would eventually end up uh, crippling the power and uh, by building the outposts that allowed Russia to break the Crimean Khanate that dominated all that area. Geopolitically, it was Ivan who laid laid the groundwork for the Russian conquest of Central Asia, the Caucasus, and uh, the whole Azov Sea and Black Sea area.
0: Right, let's look at his early life. Ivan Grozny had to grind since he was a toddler. He was born in 1530, He was a grandson of the Byzantine princess Sophia and Ivan the Great, Ivan III, a son of Vasily III and Yelena Glinskaya. His grandparents were long dead when he was born and his parents were eager to follow them. Vasily died from sepsis when Ivan was three and Yelena died when he was eight, possibly she got poisoned. A group of advisors appeared, that were called by some historians the Chosen Council, made up of the Boyer aristocratic families and some Orthodox Christian clergy. They united over the figure of Ivan IV, and they saw a possibility to influence the young Tsar. There was a weird thing with the Tsar, right? Because some are calling Ivan IV the first ever Russian Tsar.
1: Yes, it is. Uh, the point is that um, Ivan IV is the first Tsar in the sense that he was immediately crowned Tsar. And Ivan the Great, he started calling himself uh, Caesar, the Russian word for Caesar, which was then Slavicized into Tsar and um, it was the result of a political decision it was uh, when he tried to create some sort of ideological framework for the work of his rule which is the ideology that guided vasily the third when he was gathering the russian lands and so on and ivan the IV fourth was the first uh, russian ruler to be immediately crowned to be tsar and did not just claim the title for himself sometime into his rule as uh, Grand Duke of Moscow.
0: Was the Tatar title Khan the equivalent of the Tsar or the Caesar at the time?
1: Mm, that's a very complicated question. Funnily enough, um, there is a lot of etymological uh, questions about Khan and uh, Kagan and so on, and... Uh, Apparently, the title of kagan was used in the Middle Ages by Russian rulers. Ruski kaganat uh, used for the pre-Rus state that existed. It is uh, named such in, for example, the Annals of Saint Bertrand. Uh, the Russian kaganate is mentioned, and um, there is a lot of folk history about um, that is very popular in especially liberal circles that uh, the Russian monarchy is styled after the Mongol ruling style and so on. I don't think the Russian monarchy was very different from other European monarchies at the time. Except, of course, the more uh, ritualistic aspects that it took into itself uh, through the Byzantine heritage. But the title of Tsar is different because it, it did eventually come to mean something like king. And it is basically the Russian word uh, similar to Karol. God is also a Tsar. Yes, because because originally Tsar, of course, is derived from Caesar, the title of the Roman emperors. And it is uh, a claim to Roman legitimacy. And um, the, the Romanizing aspects uh, started um, quite early through the... Uh, as you mentioned, the, the marriage of uh, Ivan III to the last Byzantine emperor's niece, uh, Sophia Paleolog. and um, then the, the Third Rome theory, and Ivan IV also did some very creative uh, genealogical work by deriving his ancestry from a supposed uh, nephew of uh, Octavian Augustus named Drus, who after whom the land of Prussia is named. And as such, Ivan um, the force uh, would be a descendant both of Rurik and the Roman emperors and uh, would as such have universal claim, claim to the universal monarchy, which is what the term emperor really means. It is not a universal term for someone who rules a large country. It is a claim to total and universal rule over the known world, basically. And, uh, of course, in real politics, it's uh, more complicated than that. You can't just uh, start uh, calling yourself ruler of the world. And uh, that that, that doesn't actually bring you any closer to ruling the world. But it is a very particular title that uh, has been much fought over until it became, um, and many centuries passed, until it was accepted that there can be more than one emperor at the time in Europe
0: right so uh, he became a divine leader appointed to enact uh, god's will on this earth so we know about the byzantine connection well he was the direct ancestor of the byzantine princess the last one also he was one of the first russian rulers who invited a lot of foreigners in his court And in general, he seems to be a somewhat Europe-oriented
1: fella. This is true. This is true. It is in stark contrast to his usual image as an Asiatic despot who introduced uh, Mongol-style rule in Russia. Ivan was actually quite the westernizer in many aspects. There is also some peculiar things where there is a third aspect to his imagined ancestry, namely that in correspondence he sometimes claimed to be of uh, Saxon descent or Bavarian descent, mm. and uh, so would also claim some sort of Germanic heritage, and I think there was a letter to some German prince where he where even uh, said that uh, Russians and Germans uh, come from the same stock or something like that. And uh, it is quite interesting. He was uh, very creative in building the ideology. But yes, he was the first Russian ruler to invite a lot of Western uh, specialists to build up the city of Moscow, to build his army, engineers, scientists, scholars, and so on. And was kind of a proto-version of Peter.
0: Yeah. Do you think he knew many
1: languages? I think he knew Greek. Makes sense, yes. Uh, Yeah, because the study of Latin was not very common at that time in Russia. Greek learning, of course, uh, was very popular in Russia due to the Byzantine and Orthodox connections. Well, of course, um, he knew um, Church Slavonic, that is uh, obvious. And I'm pretty sure he knew some Polish as well. Although, of course, back then the differences uh, between... Uh, Russian and Polish were less pronounced than they are now. So I would say Greek, George Slavonic and Polish.
0: The biggest problem in the whole idea of a crazy ruler is that, well, if you look at the modern rulers, I don't think there are any crazy people because in general, crazy people cannot lord over even their own lives, much less so uh, they can rule the state even with the modern uh, waves of automation and all that. And back then, to be a ruler that rules for decades, is not easily assassinated or poisoned by his boyars, the aristocrats. You need to be very competent and very much sane to hold your position.
1: Yes, absolutely. The concept of a crazy ruler is usually... uh post-hoc explanation for when a ruler gets assassinated and uh, then his enemies start spreading around that he was uh, insane and cruel there aren't many different ways of uh, achieving the discreditation of a ruler There are like maybe two, three, four schemes that I usually used. Either he was insane and cruel or he was detached and uh, didn't give a damn about anything or he was a huge man or he spent all his time hunting and drinking. And these are always the same. And a fun example of that from more modern times is uh, if you look at what was said about the French king um, Louis XVI and uh, Nikolai II, then it is almost exactly the same. Like, even, even even some of the same phrases. And their diaries, for example, which I believe are forgeries, uh, written in the exact same tone and uh, mm-hmm. the exact same style. Like, hey, I don't care about the government. I went out, like, torturing cats today. <laughs> and it's... And, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, And uh, this is always the same, and as such, the accounts about the ruler written after his death are always painted by whether he was succeeded by loyalists or by his enemies or by opportunists. And as such, especially in that time period, it is…
0: Uh, yeah, the further down the line you go, the accusations uh, become more and more outrageous and uh, it's very true in the case of Ivan Grozny. So, as I said, he was influenced by the chosen council of uh, top Orthodox Christian clergymen and the boyars. They wanted to reform Russia, and he himself uh, cared a lot about the, the code of law, because, as I understand it, the first ever code of law in the Russian state was introduced by his grandpa, Ivan the Great, the Sudebnik.
1: Well, you could go back to Yeroslav's Ruskaya Pravda, I guess, but uh, yes, in in less uh, mystified times it's uh, that.
0: So he reworked his grandpa's Sudebnik and uh, he really strengthened the role of state judicial bodies, let's say that. And uh, also, the first printing press, the establishment of the Moscow Print Yard, was in 1553. We know that he was crowned at 16, but de facto he was the Russian ruler, the Russian государь, since he was three years old. His mother was a regent, but then she died, so from eight years to 16. Can we say that this ambiguous chosen council was his regent?
1: It is in general true that there are there have been not many monarchs in history who really had the power and the ability to rule on their own. And it's always elite groups or influence groups, people who influence the monarch who have a lot of power. And of course, this is doubly the case for minors. And especially when someone uh, starts uh, sitting on the throne at, uh, as a toddler, like even the first
0: So as a young man, apart from important domestic changes that were probably influenced by the learned man in the Chosen Council, but he was also a learned man himself. He, of course, dabbled in conquests, uh, it was not the case that Ivan IV has started really any wars. All the wars were already ongoing, basically.
1: Yes, of course, uh, Russia was on all sides surrounded by steppe nomads, by the splinters of the Mongol Empire and other nomadic peoples, and uh, it's sort of a law of history that. Uh, set out civilizations living next to nomadic civilizations leads to perpetual frontier wars. The most interesting of which uh, and the most influential, I believe, was his fight against Kazan. Yes, at the age of 22, no less.
0: A lot of the people that lived in the Kainate were not contacted by Russians prior to that. People like Udmurs, for example. Yes,
1: yes, it's uh, it is quite interesting. The Kazan-Henid, a fragment of the Golden Horde, appeared in the middle of the 15th century in the form in which uh, we know it from history, and it existed for only slightly more than a century. It was larger than the present-day Republic of Tatarstan and extended to lands that were or still are inhabited by chuvash uh, Mordvins, Bashkirs, Mari, Udmurts, and the latter by the way, were quite unhappy about um, living next to the Kazan Khanate and uh, quite willingly willingly signed up with the Russian side to fight against the Tatars. Moscow and Kazan were at war throughout their history ever since the independent Khanate emerged. Kazan Khanate originally occupied a very favorable territory geographically at the confluence of two large rivers the Volga and the Kama. And even then, the the most important trade road that built the most reliable trade connection between Eastern Europe and Asia, through the Volga and the Caspian Sea, ran there. The main exports were fur and slaves. Slavery, the Tatars, like other uh, splinters of the Horde, uh, were always slave traders and slave raiders. They obtained them by raiding Russian lands, some were enslaved in the Kazan Khanate some were sent to the south to the, to the slave markets in addition around Kazan itself uh, there was some very fertile chernozem so agriculture was also very efficient in the Kazan Khanate the relations between the Kazan Khanate and the Grand Duchy of Moscow were always uneasy from time to time the Tatars organized raids on the Russian lands as i mentioned to capture slaves and the Russians, in turn, um, not being able to, to attack the Tatars on their own soil, uh, tried to influence the, the political structures within city of Kazan and push through their own proxies. Um, there always was a pro-Moscow party in Kazan who were in favor of good relations with Moscow.
0: Although there were hundreds of Russian slaves uh, yes. inside uh, Kazan, so the pro-Russian party—I
1: mean, it, it was like the the business party, I guess—and uh, oh yeah—and <laughs> and not really pro-Russian as such. Um, in Kazan, there was a constant internal struggle between the court factions. The most influential um, faction were usually the supporters of the uh, Crimean Tatars. Uh, they would, from time to time. Um, purge the rivals and then cooperate with the uh, Crimean Tatars who were very strong at that time against Moscow. And so it was very difficult to establish a protectorate over Kazan which however w- was crucial for uh, geographical and political reasons uh, aside from being an important node to control the Volga it's also the doorstep to uh, many other territories. Another perch at the top which uh, killed off large parts of the pro-Moscow party in Kazan, coincided with the coronation of Ivan IV. Very soon he began his first campaign to Kazan, which proved unsuccessful, mostly due to unforeseen circumstances, because of the weather uh, the Russian troops were forced to lift the siege and leave. The next campaign was much better prepared. The fortress of uh, Sviashk was built by the... uh, so,
0: was built by Vyrodkov on the Vitluga River.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, it was a stronghold, uh, very close to Kazan and basically the outpost from which all the the, the Russian army uh, sieged Kazan. The Kazan was well defended with strong walls, and it was not uh, directly assaulted. Uh, Ivan tried to solve the problem peacefully, and at the same time the pro-Moscow party was not strong enough. There was no political will to be fully incorporated into the, the Russian Tsardom, And then Ivan planned a major campaign to take Kazan. It was prepared in an exemplary manner militarily. The base in Sviarsk allowed to provide supplies to the troops and what's important to continue the siege even through winter, if it should last for such a long time. Very great attention was paid to the engineering part of the siege. Vygetkov was a brilliant engineer. He also built a huge siege tower. The situation of the Tatars was worsened by the fact that a very large part of the non-ethnically Tatar population of the Kazan Khanate defected to the side of Moscow, and even some Tatars. Um, even the force personally took part in the campaign, and in addition, the Don Cossacks.
0: And this is where the free segment of our podcast ends. Free yourself from tedious American monoculture, and subscribe to Russians with Attitude. Thank you.